Well, good morning. Thank you, band. Would you take your Bible this morning and turn to Psalm 34 as we finish off our time together? You know, I've been so thankful for even the time that we've had this weekend and for the conversations that we've had. I've loved getting to tag team this with a guy that has uh, been such a good friend and example to me and Eric over the last number of years. I remember the first time I met Eric, um, uh, it was maybe the second day I was doing a counselor meeting in Ponderosa and that theme that year was on King Saul. I don't know if you remember Eric, that theme, and uh, someone, you know, usually the speaker asks, hey, anything happened in the cabins last night that I should be aware of or anything like that? And um, normally no one ever says anything, but I remember someone stood up and said, last night you made it sound like if a student rejects God and doesn't and, and constantly disobeys him, they might not know him. And Eric was like, yeah, that's exactly what I meant. And, uh, and it was like in that moment, I was like, this is my guy. Um, so I'm thankful for you, Eric, and thankful for the years that we've shared together doing this. And uh, I would love to just pray once more because uh, I think it's, it's worth noting, and I say this often, prayer is not a necessary transition from music to teaching. Nor is it like, hey, the, you know, the introductory story is over, now let's get serious. Even in the green room when we pray before, I, when, as I travel and as I teach, it's because I'm mindful of the reality that no amount of communicative eloquence has transforming power outside of the Spirit of God. And often you'll hear someone pray and maybe ask you to pray with me. And I think that's become almost like Christian jargon that means nothing to many people anymore. But when I'm asking for you to pray with me, what I mean by that is that you would not merely be a passive listener in the prayer, but that as we ask God that he would open our eyes that we may behold the wonderful things in his word, that you in your heart praying with me would go, yes, Lord, that is what we want. That is what I want. And so when I say pray with me, it's not just a, it's not slang to let's do this. It's I need you to pray because if you want God to have an impact on your life through his word this morning, it comes through prayer. So can we do that together? Holy Spirit, we thank you for the word of God that you have inspired. And Lord, we pray now that as we look to your word, you would preach a sermon stronger than I ever could. Amen. All right. I want to start off actually, first of all, in, in uh, 1 Samuel 21 to give you a little bit of context for the psalm that we are going to be in. I love the psalms. In the psalms, there is no stoic denial of emotion it's not full of posturing and pretend. It's full of people that are at real time, in real places, in real history, pouring out their heart to God. The Psalms tell us how we are to respond to heartache and pain, 
how to deal when we've been sinned against, how to deal with our own sin before God. The Psalms are our own articulation of Christian experience. And many of the Psalms have a backdrop that is worth noting, and one of those backdrops is in 1 Samuel 21. David is running for his life. Now, you need to understand something about David. David was anointed king over Israel, and then for the next 10 years of his life, he is on the run from King Saul, who is trying to kill him. He's living in caves and in the forest, and it's no coincidence as David lives in the caves that he begins to cry out and call God one name over and over again throughout the Psalms. Do you know what that name is? My rock. If you read the Psalms, there's really, I think, only David that uses this term for God because it becomes so precious to him that when all of the world around him is crumbling, Saul is pursuing him, he continually calls God his rock, his refuge, his protector, his home. Now, in 1 Samuel 21.10, it says, Then David arose, and you can just listen to this story, and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Now, this is the Philistines. Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Now, David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and he acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? Let him go. Here's the account, David is running from Saul and he's out of options to the degree where his only option left is the Philistine kingdom. And if you know anything about David's life, he had already destroyed their greatest warrior, right? Named Goliath. And Achish king of Gath says, wait, isn't this the one that they sing their songs about? Saul has slain his thousands, but David his 10,000s. This is the most dangerous man in the world. And so here's what David does. He fakes insanity and lunacy to preserve his own life. He salivates and spits and scratches at the door of the castle wall and drools down his beard in order to demonstrate to Achish, I'm no threat. I'm a lunatic. Now, look at the beginning of Psalm 31, or 34, sorry. It says of, of David when he changed his behavior before, it'll say Abimelech or Achish there in your Bible, so that he drove him out and he went away. David, after another escape from his life, even one that seems interesting as we read the account, is going to praise the Lord in this psalm. And in this psalm there are enemies, difficulties, distresses, fears, and discomforts. But in the midst of it all, the psalmist is going to compel us to bless the Lord at all times. David wants to make much of Yahweh for, because from experience, from the point of others, he has had a life that is full of fear, but he has a perspective of who God is that encourages him to praise God regardless of the circumstance, and he wants to draw others to magnify God with him. One thing to note about the psalm that I think is interesting if you study it in the Hebrew is that it is one of the only acrostic psalms. 
in your Bible where each verse starts with the following letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so there's a creativity here and what David is doing is he's going about it in a creative fashion so that it's easier to memorize and consequently easier to meditate upon. Now I wanna look at three scenes in this psalm as we look at David's account of the goodness of God. Number one, in verses four through eight, I wanna look at the experience of God's goodness in verses four through eight. David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. One thing to know in your Bibles before we continue is that any time you see Lord all capitalized, it's really the name of God, which is what? Yahweh, God's name is not God. God's name is Yahweh, which is why I like some of the newer translations that will translate that, Yahweh. It says, I sought Yahweh and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. David is not merely going to affirm the doctrine of God's goodness. He has tasted the reality of it. It's not a foreign subject to him. He's not borrowing from the experience of others. Now we do that, don't we? We have vacations vicariously through the photos that we see. We go to, we dress through, you know, vicariously for what we wish we were. That's why I wear surf clothes. Can I get up on a surfboard? I have no idea. But do I want to represent that I am? Absolutely. You do the same thing. You wear Nike. I'm an athlete. Are you really? You know, who knows? But we dress the part. We play the part. We present a posture to other people. But David is not suggesting that God is good in the vacuum. The experience that he's about to tell us is not borrowing from the experience of other people. This is a personal testimony in verse 4. And the question is, do you have this personal testimony? I sought Yahweh and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears in the midst of despair, in the midst of great darkness. God has heard my cry is what David is saying. David believed in fear. The the Psalms and David himself never suppressed the emotion of fear, but David is going to tell us over and over again that there is a way that only the child of God has that you can encounter fear in a way that leads to peace. Look at verse five. He says, those who look to him, that's Yahweh, are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. There is something different about the countenance of those who can walk in the midst of great persecution, affliction, trouble, and distress, knowing that their God is in complete control. Have you ever watched someone go through a heartbreaking tragedy that had a serenity and peace about them that was unfathomable to the world around them. David says, the irony here is that for the child of God, when the world around them is falling apart, God lifts up their countenance. Those who look to God in verse five and see that his face is directed towards them in love amidst their distress can have a countenance of radiance If anyone could have looked to himself, it would have been David, right? He was one of the most powerful men in the world, right? He's got an army. He's still vying for the kingdom at that point. He has resources. But David says, I turn to the Lord, and because of my turning towards the Lord, my countenance changes. I have a joy, a peace, and a serenity that has been elevated because my gaze is fixed on my shepherd. Verse 6. This poor man cried 
and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. David has been alone for 10 years. I wanna ask you a question. Have you ever felt alone, truly isolated? This is the style of prayer that David often employs. The natural expression of pain, solitude, isolation. And David, the writer of the majority of the Bible's hymn book, doesn't wax eloquently before God. He says, this poor man, what? Cried. You can cry. You don't have to go to seminary to know how to cry. Do you understand that some of the greatest prayers in the Bible are tearful, untranslatable gibberish from God's children that the Holy Spirit takes to the Father and translates and intercedes on behalf of God's people. I got asked a few weeks ago by someone who said, I, I wanna learn how to pray. Well, the psalmist says sometimes it's just going, God, God, God. And it's not like he's waiting for something eloquent so that he all of the sudden as God, he engages and goes, oh, this is a good one. David says, this poor man cried and Yahweh Yahweh hears him. Do you know that through your tears, God hears your prayers? Is this not precious to you? Great prayers aren't always long prayers. Sometimes they're just tear-stained prayers. Look at verse seven. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him. We talked about that yesterday with Eric. And delivers them. The angel of Yahweh camps around those who fear him. Do you understand that God is personally invested in protecting you from the forces of darkness if you're a child of God? You may be unaware of the providential deliverances that God has rescued you from, but the psalmist knows, I would not be alive today, I would not be where I am today, apart from the providential guiding, orchestrating, and protecting of Yahweh. Can you reflect on that in your own life? God's protection. This happened, this happened, this happened. Coincidental, no. Yahweh protects his own. There has not been one coincidence in your life. Do you know that? The tracing of providence, God's protection, provision, orchestration, guidance, is cause for worship. Now look at verse eight. It says, oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Do you believe that God is good? Can you reflect on the work that he has done for you in Christ? His goodness in blotting out your sin, his goodness in adopting you as his child. Where your sin abounded, God's goodness has abounded all of the more. Can you recall his goodness and his leading in your life? It is no accident you're here today. It's no accident you grew up in the home you grew up in. It's no accident you grew up with the church that you went to. Can you remind yourself that God's goodness towards you, listen, has never been prompted by a single thing you have ever done. God's goodness and his love towards you 
always needs to be seen in conjunction with his omniscient knowledge of the hidden nook and cranny of your heart. What this means is that God's love for you and his goodness towards you has never been disillusioned by the way you present and posture yourself to him. Other people may respect you for what they think you are, and there may be things about you that they don't know, and you may go, oh, if they only knew. God's love and God's goodness towards his children is not because he buys the product you're selling. He searches you and he knows you. Psalm 139, he knows when you sit and when you rise. He perceives your thoughts from afar before a word is on your tongue. He knows it completely. He hems you in. Do you so? He goes like this around his people and he has laid his hand upon you. He knows everything about you and in spite of knowing the hidden nook and cranny of your heart, he pours out his love and demonstrates his goodness. We have many faults, he has forgiven them. We have many wounds, he has healed them. We have wondered constantly and he has, as the good shepherd, brought us back. Maybe you can affirm these doctrines. But the psalmist is after something else entirely, not merely doctrinal affirmation. He does not say to agree and affirm that God is good. He says to what? Talk to me. Taste and see. This is the language of experience. You cannot truly know his goodness if you have not tasted his goodness. And this cannot happen to those who are not saved. Only those who have been reborn have regenerated taste buds so that they can see the goodness of God. Dead men cannot taste the food of the living. You cannot vicariously eat a meal for me and neither I for you. I must eat for myself, you must eat for yourself. So the question is how does this happen in my life? How can I taste and see that the Lord is good? Luther says faith is the soul's eye that sees that God is good and faith is the soul's palate that tastes that God is good. He continues to say this. He says, and this I call tasting. This is some 500 years ago. And this I call tasting when I do with my very heart believe Christ hath given himself unto me and that I have my full interest in him and that he has beareth and answereth for all my sins, all my transgressions, all my harms, and that his life is my life. When this persuasion is thoroughly settled in my heart, it yieldeth wonderful and incredibly good taste. Luther says, it's when I know that he has forgiven my sins, he's blotted them out, adopted me, and that his life is now my life. I'm no longer me, I am Christ and now I, the life I live in the flesh, I live by the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Jonathan Edwards says this, it consists in a sense of the heart of the supreme beauty and sweetness of the holiness of God. Would you say that the truth in your life fuels a sense where you would say it's experiential? Let me ask you this, and I've said this before, even maybe the other day, yesterday. Do you ever feel like you've gone 
amazing grace. How sweet the sounder, amazing love, how can it be? And felt like, I wish I, I, wish I meant that. That's what the psalmist is getting after. Now, there's a spectrum of churches in our culture, and there's a spectrum of churches that are represented in this chapel right now. But let me just speak from experience for a moment. I want to talk about spectrum swinging. It is possible to respond to culture's overemphasis of let's say the love of God at the expense of his other attributes by diminishing his love and promoting his other attributes. Let me just tell you about the way that I grew up. When I grew up, it was in the Jesus Loves You movement. Hey, hey, Jesus loves you, he's got a wonderful plan for your life. And I grew up in an environment where people would go, yes, he loves you, but he's holy. You know, and I went, it's not hard for me to believe God is holy. It was really difficult for me to begin to believe he truly, truly loves me. It's also possible to respond in a way where now you confirm and confess and doctrinally agree with his love, but you have never tasted it in your heart. It's also possible to over, you know, respond to the overemphasis of experience at the expense of truth by failing to appropriately know that the truth of God's word fuels experience. After college, I went to work with two of my best friends at the time in Australia. I was gonna go work in Germany. It didn't work out. I got my work holiday visa, and I went to work on an acai berry smoothie shack uh, on, uh, in Kulangara in Australia. And um, I remember I went to a church there, and one of the first Sundays, it says, hey, you're, you're all living in a spiritual fog. What you need to do, and, and make sure we all do this together, is you need to go up on the mountain and find your inner lion. And I was like, my inner lion, you know, I want, I've always wanted a pet lion. And so I was interested at that point. And he, they said, you're living in the spiritual fog. And basically, there has to be this second encounter where all of a sudden God ushers you into deeper communion with him. And I left being like, man, I don't know if uh, what I'm missing here. And my experience in Australia is not far different from many churches today in America Come experience God, we'll turn the lights down low and we'll crank the music up high. And this experience is presented before the truth is ever presented. So people chase experience without deeply committing their life to the truth and in turn, they get neither. But you could respond doctrinally by going what they need is the truth and fail to appropriately relate to people that if you know the truth, you need to be constantly begging God that it would become beautiful and sweet to you. We would do well in committing our lives to the truth, but the truth is not the end, it is the means to the end, and the end is knowing God. Ephesians 3.17 says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ, watch this, which surpasses knowledge. There is a knowledge that surpasses knowledge, and that is to know the love of Christ, meaning that you don't go, yes, he loves, for God so loved. No, you go, no, his love is real. And it's mine. That's Romans 5. Do you know that the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God into your heart so that you go, this is not just a doctrine. This is a thrilling reality. Eric talked last night about how sin now becomes like garbage. 
Sin only becomes garbage to people that have been satisfied by a superior product. And it's the love of God. You want to hate sin, you will never hate sin unless you know God. Because filial fear, the fear of a child, always includes not just a reverence and respect, but always an awe and affection. We may agree that there is a difference between an intellectual understanding and a spiritual understanding of scripture. First Corinthians two says, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Question for you, do you know what the natural unsaved person can do? Say that God is good. Do you know what the natural unsaved person cannot do? Taste and see that God is good. This is what Jonathan Edwards talks about in his book, Religious Affections, that the understanding in your mind is different than the supreme sense in your heart after you have relished and felt the impact of the truth upon your heart. As with Samson's lion in the book of Judges, it is possible to have sweet honey inside of a dead carcass. And consequently, it is also possible for you to know rich, theological truths inside a dead heart. Have you tasted the goodness of God? You could have your PhD in food science and know every single macronutrient, breaking down every single gram you eat, but if you don't eat the food you study, you will die. Alternatively, you could know nothing about food, look at it and go, I like yellow. Pummel that down and you will be filled. And if you have tasted, you have not consumed the full meal. You want more. And potentially, I can ask you, is it possible that those times that you can reflect and go, man, I've tasted the goodness of God the most have been in seasons of difficulty and distress, that we often drink from the cup of trials and tribulations before we have a renewed and deepened sense of the goodness of God. The word taste and see in the Hebrew are imperatives. So this is something that the, the psalmist is telling us we, we need to do. And I hope you have and I hope you continue to do it because stunted spiritual nourishment always results in stunted spiritual growth. I wanna look secondly with you so first of all, the experience of God's goodness, and then we'll go more briefly on this second and third, the expression of God's goodness. Uh, my 16th birthday, basically I've worked in restaurants all of high school and college as my way to pay through school. 60% um, of restaurants fail, and I, I started at a restaurant that was opening day, kind of 16th birthday. 60% of them fail within the first five years. Every single person goes into having a new restaurant. I'm gonna start a new coffee shop that's changing the world, you know, like, whatever it might be, because they think that their marketing strategy, their restaurant aesthetic, and the product, you know, like maybe just even the way that they have the resources behind it, will make this a restaurant that succeeds. But regardless of maybe the strategy that they go into for a restaurant, there is one marketing strategy that has stood the test of time that is more powerful than any reel or TikTok that man can make up. The most powerful marketing strategy is called what? Word of mouth. Those who like what they have tasted, share it. Have you been 
to Chronic Taco. Have you been? Have you tried? Are you serious? Life-changing, really. Really, the honey Dijon dressing was life-changing? Yes. Those who like what they've tasted, express it. And this is what the psalmist is going to do. Those who have experienced the goodness of God cannot keep it to themselves. You've never liked a single meal you haven't wanted to share with other people or return to the restaurant. And so look back at verse one of Psalm 34. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. He says, I am resolved, I'm determined. Because of God's goodness, he rightfully so monopolizes his creature's praise. Regardless of the situation, the circumstance, the trial, I am determined to bless the Lord at all times. Eric mentioned his time in Chicago. I also grew up in Chicago, and I remember the rule that if you were white under, you know, after Labor Day, that was like a, a very faux pas thing. It's unseasonable to wear white after Labor Day. But the psalmist is saying, there is not a single season, a single moment where it is unseasonable to praise God. I will praise him at all times because I have tasted of his goodness, because I have drunk deeply from the well of his love and kindness to me, I always have a reason for why his praise shall not only be in my heart, but also on my tongue. I do this, you know why? Because conviction and passion is contagious. And my hope is that as I declare God's hope and goodness to me, others will share in that goodness. And they will praise the Lord as well. They've eaten the same meal as me. They've drunk from the same cup. I can't help it. They can't help it. Let's praise God together. Verse two, David says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear it and be glad. I want you to understand, you were made to boast. The fall of man skewed and distorted boasting, but boasting itself is not a fallen construct. Jeremiah 9, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. And it says the humble will hear it and rejoice. Do you understand what he just said? Because the humble people I know, when other people boast to them, it's repugnant to them because their life is defined by such a humility. They can't imagine just going on and on about your own accomplishments or what you're doing. Yeah, I'm actually being pursued by 12, you know, like, never mind. Okay. <laughs> but the humble hear this type of boasting and rejoice. There is only one type of boasting that the humble person can hear and go, amen. And it's the boasting in the goodness of Yahweh because they've been humbled by his goodness and they also want to boast in this goodness. Now verse three, oh magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. David is saying, I cannot do this alone. This is too much goodness for a one man band. Join me, join me. Everybody join me. Magnify Yahweh with me. A symphony is required. A choir is commanded. His goodness is too worthy of praise for me to do alone. Verse 11, he'll say the same thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. Those who have experienced God's goodness, God's goodness want to express it. And one of the surest indicators of the level in which you've tasted God's goodness is how much you are compelled to share that. 
Third here, we're gonna see the assurance of God's goodness in verses 15 through 22. So we have the experience of God's goodness, the expression of God's goodness, and the assurance of God's goodness. Sometimes we believe that God is good when our circumstances are good, but you need to understand something, friend. God's goodness is not predicated upon your circumstance. His goodness is anchored in his character. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Goodness is who God is, not what we feel. And so in verse 15, David is going to reflect for us. He says, the eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous and his ears are towards their cry. Have you ever seen a mom with her children? You know, I, I maybe have told you before, if you've been up here, I'm one of seven kids, a lot of kids. Um, and we're all within nine years. So girl, boy, boy, four girls. And I remember my mom and my dad used to take us, and I was telling Eric this in the green room, we used to go do obstacle courses at the park, and there'd be other people there. And my dad would be just, run, you know, like throwing water balloons at us, you know, like whatever. But my mom, my mom would be like this. Kyle, let's see, Johnny, Abby, Pete, your father. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Kyle, let that go. That's poisonous. <laughs> you know. Because that's a mother's role. But does a mother watch her children merely because it's her job? What's the answer? No, she watches her children because she what? She loves them. And David says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. These aren't just omniscient, all-seeing eyes. These are the loving, caring, concerned eyes of a father. Have you thought about that reality in your life, that God watches over you as a child and not just as a worker. This isn't a factory where you're one of God's workers. This is a home where you are one of God's children. And then he says this. He says, and his ears are towards their cry. And then in verse 17, he says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears them. We, a few months ago, began taking Lily to the nursery and we go to a fairly large church, and so the nursery is like baby's day out. It's, it's, it's just dozens and dozens of babies. It's a free-for-all. And when I, when I get back to the nursery and when Katie returns to the nursery, you can't always see your baby. There's like 30 of them. But before I even round the corner, there's something so distinct about your baby that you know from afar. What is it? It's their cry. I know Lily's cry. There could be 30 babies in here. And I would know my daughters like this. And when the scripture says his ears are towards their cry, God is not looking over the nursery of creation going, ah, number 99 is having a rough day again. Gabriel, pick him up. No, he goes, that's my child and I know that cry. I love them, I care for them, I'm concerned for them. I know them. God is immensely concerned 
caring and loving towards you. And he knows your cry. David is expressing that God looks upon you not just in the sense where he is generally aware of the happenings in your life and he gets highlight reels from his archangels. Hey, here's Johnny's life. When's this guy gonna grow up? No, it's not like that. God watches over you carefully in tenderness and compassion. Look at verse 18. It says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, that's Yahweh, and saves the crushed in spirit. God is near. God's omnipresence is the dread of those who run from him, but the treasure of those who run towards him. This is what David says in Psalm 139. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. David is saying, the eyes of the Lord are on me. He is near to me. He doesn't just watch me. He doesn't watch you like this. Merely, he's with you like this. So David is covering all the bases that God is not just the all-seeing eye. He's my next door neighbor, friend, protector, king. And he says he's near to certain people in particular. He says the Lord is near to the, what does it say in your Bible? What do you have? Brokenhearted. Are you brokenhearted? Have you been ganged up on? Are you crushed in spirit? David says God has a special care and a special nearness to those who are crushed. But not only does God care, look at verse 19 and 20. God, Yahweh himself, preserves. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. David is reflecting on his own experience, but his experience is being launched into the future because we would be sticking our heads in the sand to not think that any of our bones won't be broken. What is David saying? Well, this is one of the points where David is obviously reaching beyond the experiences of any believer. He has seen, think with me, thousands of people dead in the field of battle, and yet here he's saying, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of all of them. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. What is he saying? He's seen hundreds of thousands of dead bodies. Well, apart from verse eight, these words in verse 20, if you've read the New Testament, you know to whom they refer. You know that in John's gospel, it says that during the crucifixion of Jesus, in order to hasten the deaths of those who were hanging, they would break their legs so that they would no longer be able to prop themselves up and get another breath. But when they came to Jesus, seeing that he had already died, not a single bone of the greater son of David's was broken. There's a thread in the psalm. Yesterday I received a scarf. And sometimes we used to knit at Christmas. And you know, sometimes you just begin to pull. And you begin to pull and pull and pull. There's a thread in the psalm where if we pull and pull and pull, we will be absolutely convinced of the goodness of God. Not just because David saw, or God saw David through the crisis, 
but because in those hours when Jesus hung on the cross, we can see that in his hours when his bones were not broken, you and I can be absolutely convinced of the goodness of God. It is of this Paul speaks about in Romans 8 when he says, we know that in all things God is working everything out for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. How can we know that God is working all things out for good? How can you and I believe that? Because it always gives us the answer typically in the next couple verses. How can you know that God is working everything out for good? Because he did not spare his one and only son. Will he not freely also give you everything you need? So regardless of the darkness, irrespective of the distress, if he has continued, or if he has given us his son, he will continue to demonstrate and prove his goodness to us. And maybe the prayer is, oh God, oh Father, I wanna know, how can I know that you are good? And the answer of scripture as God as Father speaks to you is my son, my daughter. I have given my one and only son for you and I will withhold no good thing from you. I've given you and you the strongest, most credible proof of my goodness. So trust me, trust my son, find deep assurance of his goodness. And then our hearts will say, regardless of the distress, oh God, that's all the proof we will ever need. Do you doubt God's goodness? Then look no further than the pulpit of Calvary where God preached his strongest sermon ever. Do you believe in your heart that God is really, really good? Like really, really good? You can only say that if you know that he did not spare his son. And if he loves you that much, he will stop at nothing until you taste and see his goodness. What, what's the fruit of tasting the goodness of God? Well, when you taste God's goodness, you'll no longer want the Turkish delight that the world has to offer. If you taste God's goodness, you're no longer fighting for fleeting goodies because you compare them to the superior taste. Do you struggle with sin? Do you have things in your life or do you struggle with assurance? Whatever it might be, if you want to drive out sin in your life, you need to taste the goodness of God. How can I do it? Well, it says like newborn babies crave the pure spiritual milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, comma, so thankful for run-on sentences in the Bible, comma, if you have tasted the goodness of God. Do you lack hunger for God's word? The Bible says that those who have tasted his goodness salvifically are those that want to be driven to his words to sanctify them. And so reflect and consider, what has God done in my own heart? And when you recall and recite and reflect on that reality, you go, man, I wanna know this God more and I'm not content to merely agree and affirm. I want to taste and see. I wanna bring up my brother Eric and um, 
want to maybe see if there's anything from this weekend that we haven't covered, but I'm going to bring Eric up, and if you have any questions, would love to hear him. But I've loved my time with you guys this weekend, and I'm so thankful for the truth of God's word that we've been able to explore together. Brother. I was so helped by this sermon. It was so helpful to me. Something I'm, I'm becoming more and more aware of and committed to is recognizing ways that we're being led astray in our thinking about idolatry or error. And what we can tend to do and what I can tend to do is react in a way that makes it seem like I don't care about something at the heart of that idol. So if I see the church going in a direction, say with dealing with social justice issues or race, race issues, where that's becoming everything, and we don't even talk much about Jesus anymore, it's all about social justice, say. We can react and say things in a way that makes it seem like we don't care about that. And so, so what we need to do instead is do it better than, than a worldly approach. Not give the impression we don't care about those things, but do those things in a gospel way. And what I was so helped by, Johnny, is what you've done several times this weekend is, is say, okay, experience is dominating our perception of life, and we need to keep it in perspective. But let's not make it seem like experience doesn't matter from a biblical perspective. It does. We don't want experience to become this idolatrous determiner of reality because I can be experiencing something that's terribly wrong or a lie. But what you're encouraging us to do is, is be, be legitimately authentic about our experience before God and see God work in that. And where you ended was vital for us that when I'm doubting God, when I'm having genuine experience that is leading me to despair, to discouragement, to frustration, to doubt, where I need to centrally go is the gospel, is the cross of Christ. And if, and if I believe God sent his son to die for me just where you ended, how will he not with him also mm. graciously give us all things? Mm. And so that legitimate emphasis on our experience that the Psalms give us, but most of the time, overwhelmingly, it ends up leading us to a confidence in the character of God. So, so the question I have is, is what kind of authenticity is Psalm-like honest authenticity? And what is actually giving myself permission to be self-absorbed, to have a kind of authenticity that's actually dishonoring to God and unedifying? Like, I'll talk to people, like, I have a friend who was on staff with Athletes in Action, he was in Christian ministry, and I was playing in a basketball game with him, and a, a guy fouled him really hard, and he starts cussing the guy out. He's on staff of ministry. He throws the ball on him. He starts throwing F-bombs at the guy, and my friend goes and pins him against the wall and said, what is your problem? He said, I'm being real, man. I'm being real. I'm, I'm, I'm wild at heart, and he, and he goes, yeah, you're being a real jerk is what you're being, right? So there's a kind of authenticity that's actually unedifying. Yeah. Right? That's not what you're encouraging. No. But how do we know the difference between being raw and real and authentic and, and actually being an unedifying jerk or being real before God in a way that actually gets people struck dead by God in the Bible, right? Yeah. You, could, you could try to justify a kind of rebellion 
that God kills people for in the Bible. So it could be dangerous if you yeah. misunderstand what you're saying. So how do we discern the difference between a, a legitimate psalm-like authenticity that's actually leading us to honoring God and, and edifying others? And what's just an excuse to, to honestly be an idiot? How do you know the difference? How can we, we along the way discern the difference? How, how would yeah. you practically help us with that? Yeah, I think the authenticity element is an important thing to distinguish. You know, you mentioned the book Strange New World yesterday, and Carl Truman has that basically the chapter on authenticity as the new idol of the self. That 50 years ago, when the Watergate scandal happened, people were appalled at the idea of Richard Nixon cussing on a tape. And that became part of the impetus for people to no longer want him to be a president in office because they couldn't believe the idea that a guy would cuss on tape that was the president because he was supposed to be the backbone of our moral fiber. Now, if a president cusses, people go, I like that he's real. And uh, he kind of drew that distinction out. And so I think that the element of authenticity is exampled for us in the Psalms. So I think that whenever we're trying to figure out the balance, we look to the Psalms where David in many Psalms seems schizophrenic because he goes, where are you, God? Where are you? I want this. I want this. I feel the, you know, the, the hounds surround me. I'm down in the miry bog. Where are you, O Lord? And then he says, and yet I will trust. So lift up my countenance. So I think the model of authenticity, and this is why I love the Psalms so much, uh, they're example because it's this, God, I earnestly want you. And true authenticity always is the, not the foundation, but the fruit of communion with God. So I think one of the things to distinguish would be in the Psalms, they're written because David is prioritizing his time with the Lord and then in prayer and then authenticity flows out of that. That's why I love Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in your Bible, but over and over again, David will talk about, and there's 176 verses and in 171 of them, he directly references the word of God. And in that time, he's even talking about a schedule. He longs for midnight. Why? Because it's the only time he knows for sure he'll be alone so he can commune with God. And then out of that time, there flows this, God, I still struggle with this. I'm mad at this. These people in my life, you know, away from you, Psalm 145, these bloodthirsty men, they speak of you, God, with evil intent. They're sin and these people around me. But, oh, God, please, I will trust you. And so I think the Psalms are so helpful in that regard. Um, because or else we can begin to posture. And that's what I don't like about church. And we, like at times we'll, and I address this at church, this, how are you? Good brother, everything's good. And I think that we create that type of an environment at church. And so I think that's part of shepherding is to go, hey, let's be real. Not where everyone has to wear their distresses as a badge. You know, being, that, that can be the flip side. And that's where I think we have to be biblical going, hey, the joy of the Lord is my strength. So there's a real joy. And there's also a transparency going, you can pray for me. I'm having a rough week. But I think sometimes it's either total posturing or then there's people in my life that are perpetual Eeyores. You know, and I think that the Christian should be neither. They should be a balance of what we see in Scripture, a joy regardless of the storm, but they can be honest about the storm. Yeah, because I just love that perspective because there can actually be a cynicism about people who are genuinely cheerful, joyful, and optimistic yeah. As if they're not being real. Totally. That's the downside, that, that there's got to be something phony in there. Yeah. There's got to be some posing going. Come on, be real about, about the junk in your life. Okay, yeah. there's junk, but you know what? I remember seeing, you guys remember emos, that whole emo category? I thought you said Nemo, and I said, yeah, oh, I yes, hope so. You know, that's a hilarious <laughs> move. But, 
Remember emo kid? I remember there was a t-shirt years ago that said, cheer up, emo kid. And, you know, always being down. And, and I thought, yeah, cheer up, emo kid. Jesus is coming back. He's going to solve all the problems. So, so we can be optimistic. And, and authenticity can include a cheerful joy and, and a childlike exuberance as well as the struggle. Yeah, they both can be real. And that, that's my concern, that there can be an, an instinctive skepticism and even cynicism about somebody who's genuinely joyful. I, I talk to people quite a bit. I meet these people and they exude joy and they have friends telling them, you got to be more real. Yeah. And, and they want to say, this is real. Don't judge me with, with some judgmental attitude because I'm legitimately joyful because I believe God's going to graciously give us mm -hmm. all things because he gave us I think us Paul himself. was probably a model of that, you know, like yeah. there was passages I left out because I forgot we started at 930. So I thought I'd been going for an hour, <laughs> but I was like, wait a second, I had time. The, uh, but even that's Paul, you know, going throughout in, in joy, that's Philippians 2, that I can do all things, or Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ is not about a basketball game. It's, it's about having joy in every storm because he's talking about contentment in the passage. And you mentioned yesterday that his back would have been scarred. Paul says, I bear on my body the marks of my, bond, like my service to Christ. But then he says, rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. It's a double emphatic. So I, I think that there is those elements, but I think even part of what fuels that, and this is what I love from the scripture, once you begin to see themes in the Bible, the more you read it, the more you see those themes come to life as you study. And for me, reading this element that, no, God's goodness is experiential, then you begin to see that in all of Paul's letters. He says, I press on towards the prize. What's the prize? The prize of knowing him even more. You know, this knowledge. Colossians 1, I pray that you would be filled up with the knowledge of Christ, which is beyond understanding. That there is a level where you go, no, communion with God is not a theoretical abstract principle. It's a promised reality to his children. And that should be the prayer of every single person's heart. And then once you pursue that and you go, man, I want that, then it becomes precious to you. But I think for me, because I grew up in the church, Eric, and I think I, I used to sing, you know, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. And I just went, I don't know if I've ever felt this. And I think I, I was like, man, we're, I wanna feel like my relationship with Jesus is precious. And then in reading the Puritans, it's been funny because there's this idea of the Puritans that they're these old Scrooges. So but the number, you know, there's a study that Joel Beakey did that I thought was interesting. He said the number one word that this, the Puritans use um, is the word sweetness. And they write thousands and thousands of pages, volumes and volumes and volumes. They're talking about the sweetness of knowing God. And they're reflecting on their own experience and treasuring his goodness. And I went, man, I just want that. And then, then it becomes authentic. And that's what Paul is. I'm going to probably die. God is so good. So it's neither one or the other, you know. Yeah, yeah Paul's phrase I, I think of a lot is that we're to be sorrowful and always rejoicing. And so in the Christian life, it's not a mutually exclusive thing. There's a brokenheartedness to recognizing that we're living in a terribly fallen world. But it's, it's a brokenhearted joy. There's a sorrow that's always rejoicing. There, there's, there's a recognition of how bad things are, but a confidence that God's going to make all things right. And so it, it's not an either or for us. There, there's a brokenhearted joy that's at the heart of the Christian life. That, that seems like a paradox, but it isn't when you really understand 
the Christian perspective. So good. All right, That's what good. do you got? Comments, questions, thoughts? Last chance. Tell me your name. Jonah. Hey, Jonah. Jonah, what a great question. He's asking, how do we take doctrinal truth and, and really not just have some cold idea, but, but driven by a desire to know God? Beautiful question. You know, it's amazing. Johnny and I have primarily worked with high school students together here at Hume for years now. And it has been so obvious this is a young adult conference. It's just been unbelievable, amazingly mature you people have, uh, have displayed yourself to be this way with questions like that and amazing conversations. You are getting after it and really wanting to know God. So thanks for that fantastic question. Uh, I say to my students at Biola all the time, I am deeply concerned that you understand theological truth after this class. But I care even more that you become better theologians that you understand and absorb whole Bible doctrine in a way where it's deeply affecting your soul. And it does take study, study to show yourself approved. And that's one of the things I, I really want to emphasize, that I love the desire that I've seen happen. So when I started teaching uh, college students in 95, I know, long time ago, when I started teaching college students in 95, they were caught up in the church growth movement that was I think had a shallowness because of consumerism and they really considered it right that they be marketed to and so when I started teaching it was like show them lots of clips of the matrix because that's all they can handle right and just go right down to their level and it's all images and use lots of PowerPoint and and we were being encouraged to really cater to a shallow entertainment spectator mentality I think there's been this pretty dramatic shift away from that where you're not impressed by these big impressive mega churches nearly as much as they were when I started teaching you want it to be real you want it to be legitimate and meaningful and you want your life to count you don't just want to be a spectator who's marketed to isn't that true I mean it's just amazing how this shift has taken place like you you you're skeptical actually if you think somebody's marketing to you or trying to be cool like, I've never been motivated for young people to think I'm cool. It's probably pretty obvious. Uh, but I don't know. You got the rasp. The voice. The, the voice. That's you know. just because I've overused it. Yeah. So, especially in football, yelling out, Blue 19! But, but, Whoa, but, one more time. <laughs> Blue 19, yeah. So, so I love that about you. But, but my question is, when I think about the generation I primarily teach, is do you actually have the simple daily patience to go to bed a little, little bit earlier so you get up a little bit earlier and get in your Bible? Two of the women who are in our church who are here, I think. Where are you guys? Where are you, Lizzie? Oh, there's, there's my people. Yeah, they're like family to us. They're in our church. But they both got up and got in the Word this morning. 
You know, it was a beautiful, they're staying with us up at our cabin. And, and it's just beautiful to see these young women get up and get in the Word. I mean, it, it's so tempting to just dive into the play here at, at Hume, but, but they're women of the Word, and, and that's a legacy that's been passed down to them. And so, so the, the daily discipline obedience to study and to work hard and to read your Bible regularly and meditate on it and pray and, and be men and women of prayer and diligent pursuit of God that flat out takes discipline and work. That's what I wonder. Is there a patient endurance and a disciplined diligence to get you where I really think you want to go? That's my big concern. So it does take work. But it is, that's why the experience thing is so important because the spirit takes this work and this word, this objective truth, and he's the one who takes it home in our hearts, pours out his love, his love in us, and takes objective truth and makes it subjectively real. And understanding the word in a redemptive historical way with good theological method that we're learning as well is absolutely vital. I'm even more concerned about how we're getting to our conclusions than I am about the conclusions because if we've got a good method, we'll be getting to the right conclusions. But we have all this terrible idea that you know, people just blurt out Christians. I could never serve a God who? As if you set an agenda for God and what he better be like if he's going to get your worship. That's a complete misunderstanding of God. And so, so I love your question, Jonah, because, because it's asking how do we combine this deep desire to know God and delight in him with a daily disciplined pursuit of him that can feel dry. You can end your time in the Word and say, well, I'm not sure what that's actually supposed to do for my life, but I'm going to keep at it because I believe God and His Word. And so that patient endurance for the, the numerous days that feel like, all right, Lord, I'm just keep, I just keep putting your Word away in my heart. It doesn't feel dramatic. It doesn't feel enthusiastic. But I want you to know that God loves wanting to want Him. You don't have to be at the place of wanting him for he, him to be pleased with your pursuit of him. He actually, I believe, takes delight in desiring to desire him and being honest about the fact that you're not actually there yet. But you're staying at it because you believe he's good and you believe because he sent his son that he'll graciously give us you all things. And he is good. And I've tasted it. And I'm not feeling it right now, but I'm staying at it. Guarding the good deposit. Think of how often the message of the Bible is guard the good deposit. Fight the good fight of faith. You know, press on to the upward call in Christ Jesus. The, 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 the assumption is it's hard and it takes patience. It takes endurance. It takes discipline. And that's what I'm concerned about, that these good desires become actual daily acts of faith in pursuit that usually feel mundane and like you just got up and you're sleepy-eyed and you dozed off three times during your prayer time, but that's all right, because we're frail, but we're pursuing God out of that frailty. He knows our frame, we're but dust, and he's not surprised by it. So he's pleased with that kind of battle that we fight to know him. Sorry, you got me going, Jonah, with your great question. Agreed. You go ahead, Lewis.
Mm. Oh, thank you, bro. I, I think that is important. I think even to couple that with what you're saying, Jonah, I think it's no coincidence that part of that pursuit of knowing God is work, and that's why Paul uses, I think, six terms to describe the Christian life. A farmer, a laborer, a soldier, a runner, a boxer, and a slave. Um, but then he'll also say that it's, it's the most wonderful, thrilling thing, again, in the world, that everything else is rubbish in comparison with it. So I think that's that both and, that you pursue, and it's, it's something that pays off 10x, because knowing God is true. And that's John 14, that Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And whoever obeys me and pursues me, I and my Father will disclose myself to them. This is a progressive verb, meaning that there is a gradual disclosure that God gives to his children of who he is that infinitely satisfies them. And for me, that became the main thrust for pursuing God, going, if I pursue God, I will receive more and more of who he is and know him. And that's why Spurgeon used to say that most Christians are content to wade ankle deep in their intimacy and communion with God. And he says, oh Lord, oh Lord, let me plunge. And uh, I remember reading that going, man, I, that's what I want. So, You know what, Lewis, what I want to say is, just in our brief conversation yesterday, it was so encouraging to me to see the way that you're seeking to be a minister in your, in your secular university in a tough environment to do that because that is absolutely vital in your experience of the goodness of God. Because there's something that happens when I'm not just trying to help understand how good, myself understand how good is, but when I'm trying to help others to do that. And it's what Johnny said, that when we really taste the goodness of God, we invariably want others to taste the goodness of it as well, like the food in the restaurant, right? You're doing that. You're not just trying to get it yourself. You're trying to help other people get it out of that experience. And what that does is actually further contribute to it's your a vicious cycle. Yeah, 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 it's just beautiful. So, so that's so vital, Lewis. To, I, I'm confident you're going to keep growing because you're not keeping, you're not a cul-de-sac of the goodness of God. You're a freeway where you're trying to bring people from the on-ramp on with you, saying, come on, I'm following Jesus and tasting his goodness. Come with me. And that's absolutely essential in your own growth. Paul says to Philemon, I pray you'll be active in sharing your faith. It's wild what he says next. He doesn't say so that you'll have a good understanding of all the good things we have in Christ. You know what he says? Yeah, so that they will. He doesn't say so they'll have a good understanding. He says, I pray you'll be active in sharing your faith so you'll have a full understanding of every good thing you have in Christ. Because when you try to give it away, it becomes more precious to you. And so it, it, knowing the goodness of God fuels proclamation, and the proclamation fuels a deeper appreciation for the goodness. That's what Johnny was saying in that second point. The expression is not just for ministry purposes. It's for growth purposes. And it's happening right now in my heart as I'm talking to you about this, right? I, I'm convinced one of the reasons God gave me the jobs he gave me as a pastor and a prophet is because I so desperately need these reminders on a daily basis. I have no option but to preach the goodness of God, and that feeds my own soul. So a ministry mentality, which can be very hard to have in the kinds of circumstances many of you are in, is something you commit to for your own growth, not just to bless other people. 
Unamas, and then I think you guys got to go to lunch. So then what we can talk if you guys need. I know some of you are leaving before lunch, so let's just do one more and then. This young lady right Yeah, here you go. I think maybe uh, I'll answer real quick first in regards to the specific passage you mentioned and then maybe tag team that. Uh, How can we be sure of the goodness of God in the account of John 11 with Lazarus? I actually find that to be one of the most convincing proofs of the goodness of God of any passage because Jesus shows up on the scene having full omniscient and sovereign knowledge of what's gonna happen. And it says in John 11, 35 that he what? He wept. Why? Why? Well, it's because he's not just the sovereign king of the universe. He's sympathetic, empathetic. He feels. He feels. And so regarding God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty is never divorced from his intimate care and concern. And so Jesus, his, his own tears are visible manifestations of the reality that he is deeply concerned and feels the pain of his people He could have just said, listen, you're ridiculous. Watch what's about to happen. Boom, come forth. But he he felt their pain in such a way that is so comforting for me in my pain to know that he is not, he's not just aware of it. He feels with me. He lisps with me. And I'm grateful for that regarding God's goodness. And then regarding the problem of evil, I don't know if Eric, you want to partner on that. Such a great question. And by the way, so articulate articulately put I'm telling you I'm leaving here this weekend with significantly increased hope for the future of the church I am you are some amazingly bright eager earnest devoted people who are not only working these things out personally but in the context of ministry it's just beautiful I feel like I could die now and we'll be, you'll be good really I'll drive right off the cliff on the way home I'll be good uh, with no one else in the car with me hopefully but um, Did you ever hear the joke, I want to die the way my grandfather did, peacefully in his sleep, not like the people in his car who were screaming as he was driving? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I love that joke. I love it. I love that joke because you're like, oh, oh, right. Uh, Uh, Eric just secondhand lines into the water. But I do, I'm just so grateful for you amazing people. This has been incredible. What, a, what an amazing sample of young people in our church today. But, but I love that question. And what I want us to realize is that kind of the ultimate answer to every difficult question is, well, it's this way because God was convinced that doing it this way would bring more glory to him and more glorification for his people at the end of it all. Right? That's... Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So we trust his sovereignty and for the pursuit of his own glory and the good of his people, which is his goal in everything. And so we rest in that. 
But Johnny's point is so important. This God who's sovereign over everything is a God who saves us by rolling up his sleeves and moving into our mess. He doesn't save us from a distance at arm's length. He grieves over the rebellion and the, the devastation that's caused in a fallen world. He hears the cries of his people even before the incarnation where God becomes one of us and enters this world where he literally walks our dirty streets and gets his hands dirty saving us and hands bloody saving us. And so he's a God who's with us as well as over us working out his plan. So it's this beautiful rest in his sovereign determination of all that happens for the good that he knows it will produce as, as, he, as sin and evil enter this world. But he knows it'll be a display of his character in a way where we have the raw data to worship from him for all of eternity because of the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. And the most evil thing that's ever happened is the cross of Christ. The only truly innocent man who's ever lived being nailed to a cross. And what does God say? All this happened according to the predetermined plan of God. And so he, he, is, he is working out his plan in the midst of sin and evil that, that is, has its root in, in human rebellion in a way where we trust him to save us. And he's got an answer to this. It's one thing to have a problem with evil, but I want to know what your solution to it is. Do you have one? Or is it just despair? Is it just fatalism? We're stuck in this horribly tragic fallen world. So where is the hope? The hope is in God's redeeming work that he's promised he will bring to completion. And so he saves us not from a distance, and he saves us in a way of complete vanquishing of sin and evil one day when evil will be no more. I and think, so we have that hope in Jesus. Oh, I, th I think one thing that... Just a couple on what Eric's saying, and then I, I got the from the back, because I think you guys got to pack up before lunch. Um, is God's good plan in Romans 8.28 always needs to be understood with Romans 8.29, that the good God is working all things towards in your life is not your material prosperity or comfort, but the confirmation, a conformity of you into the image of his son. So when it says God is working all things out for good, it says for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Do you know what the good God is moving all things towards? It's that you become more like Jesus, not that you feel like everything is good. And so then we understand the sovereignty that God is moving and orchestrating and providentially directing everything in my life so that I become more like him. I gotta pray, there's a video, and then we'll wrap up and tell you um, what's next. I love you. Hey, can we thank Eric? It's been so fun. So let me pray. There's a video, and then we'll kind of tell you what's next. Lord, we are so thankful, Lord, even for the opportunity to engage in conversation around you, your word, your people. I'm so thankful for the thoughtful, intentional questions that have been asked. It's just an exhibition that there is a deep desire to know the truth, Lord, we're praying that you would direct uh, these people here, Lord, to solid Bible churches, Lord, that teach your word, Lord, and that would fuel even greater study. God, truly, the deeper we go in your word, the more thrilling it becomes to us. Lord, uh, a shallow understanding of your word can only produce shallow experience. And so, Lord, I pray that we would dive more deeply into the truth, 
Lord, so that we would know more deeply your love, so that we would be more compelled to proclaim that love. And as Eric just reminded us, Lord, that we would be even encouraged in our own life because the truth is not a cul-de-sac, it's a freeway. Lord, that where we would be able to proclaim it to others and as we see how you work in their lives, it encourages our own hearts. God, we love you and we pray this in your name and all God's people said, Amen. amen.